If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 190 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Connie Malamed, a learning experience design consultant. And uh, those terms, learning experience and learning experience design, are very hot right now. A lot of people talking about that. Salisa, what do you and Connie talk about? Well, Connie's been helping organizations create meaningful learning experiences for more than 20 years at this point, and so we dig into practical, tactical topics. Uh, visual design is one of those. Connie studied visual design, and she wrote the book Visual Design Solutions, Principles, and Creative Inspiration for Learning Professionals, and so I wanted to get her take on the role of visual design in learning. We also delve into cognitive load, which of course is a major factor in learning. All of us as learners are limited by what our working memory can handle. And Connie adds an interesting discussion of group or peer learning and how that can impact cognitive load. And we also talk about how to work well with subject matter experts. And we talk about curation and curated courses, a, a concept of hers that I think could be applicable to many learning businesses. Yeah, these are all topics that uh, we, we see uh, a lot of need for better practices in. Um, so many organizations certainly struggle with visual design in their learning. They struggle with cognitive load. And, um, and of course, many wrestle with how to work well with subject matter experts, which is, of course, so important to the capacity of any learning business. So great stuff that you're covering here with Connie. Let's go ahead and get this interview rolling. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele and today I'm joined by Connie Malamud. Connie is a learning experience design consultant, having helped organizations create meaningful learning experiences for decades. She's the publisher of the eLearning Coach website and podcast where she shares actionable strategies, practical content, product reviews, and resources to help others design, develop, and understand learning, instructional design, and visual design. Connie's the author of the books Visual Design Solutions and Visual Language for Designers, and she's a speaker and workshop facilitator in the fields of learning experience design, design thinking, and visual communication. Connie, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're really glad to have you here. And to start off, I want to ask, what else would you like listeners to know about you and your work as as background for our conversation today? Um, basically just that I'm very dedicated to, uh, my practice, my field, always trying to learn something new. And I just care a lot about making things meaningful, effective, and, and improving performance for, to help people at work. Well, I think that, uh, attention and commitment to what you do comes across in all the materials that you provide. And so I'm really excited now to have this chance to connect with you in, um, in real time. And I thought to start off that maybe we would talk about visual design because you have a graduate degree in instructional design and technology, but as an undergrad, you studied art education. And I know you've drawn on that, uh, art background in your work. Um, both of your books focus on visual design and so I'll just ask kind of a big general question of, of what role does visual design play in learning? 
Well, you know, a lot of cognitive psychologists uh, believe or theorize or think that people have two channels for processing information, one verbal, which means essentially audio, and one visual. And so much of the brain um, is devoted to processing visual information. So when we use visuals in learning, we're kind of being aligned and attuned to how our brain already works. And because of that dual track, we're giving people another avenue to recall uh, information. So visuals can be used in so many ways. And here we're talking about relevant visuals, not distracting or irrelevant or just some silly clip art that's thrown up for decoration. But it's really about communication. So visuals can be used to express ideas. Um, there's, there are all those information graphics, diagrams, charts, graphs that can be used to express concepts. There are just so many ways that we can use visuals to depict situations and scenarios that in terms of almost any instructional materials, slides, um, and marketing materials too, slides, e-learning, websites, just visuals are, play a key role. Well, and you mentioned that they have to be relevant, and I think this might kind of lead into something else I wanted to ask you about, um, which is cognitive load, because, you know, if those visuals are irrelevant and they start kind of competing for our our learners' um, available um, space for processing things, and, and so I know that we have to be aware of that if we're creating learning experiences, and um, I come across some of your work around cognitive load, particularly in the context of collaborative learning, which I thought was really interesting because I hadn't necessarily heard anyone um, kind of put that spin on it. So would you first remind listeners what cognitive load is in general, and then talk some about how cognitive load impacts group learning? Before we hear Connie's response, let's pause to thank our sponsor. Community Brands, our sponsor for this quarter, provides a suite of cloud-based software for organizations to engage and grow relationships with the individuals they serve, including association management software, learning management software, job board software, and event management software. Community Brands' award-winning Crowd Wisdom Learning Platform is among the world's best LMSs for corporate extended enterprise and is a leading LMS for association-driven professional education programs. Award-winning Freestone, Community Brands' live event learning platform, is a leading platform for live learning event capture, webinars, webcasts, and on-demand streaming. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. Now, let's get to Connie's explanation of cognitive load. To understand cognitive load, you have to understand just quickly two um, aspects of human cognitive architecture. One is working memory, and working memory is the aspect of our minds that are that is conscious. It's where we manipulate information. And one quick way to relate to working memory is when someone tells you a phone number, you have to rehearse it to remember it before you can put it in your phone or write it down. So cognitive, uh, so working memory has a very short duration, and it's very small. And then we also have another type of memory, and all of this is essentially theorized, but has 
shown to be true, and um, there's a lot of evidence for it in research. And then we have long-term memory, and that's essentially infinite. That's where we store all of the information, skills, knowledge, attitudes. All of that is stored in long-term memory. And in order to try to understand something, something new, we bring up information from long-term memory and try to figure it out. So because of that, cognitive load is so important to learning because Essentially, it refers to the total amount of mental activity imposed on working, member, on working memory in any one instant. So remember, working memory is small, and it has a very short duration. So because it's so limited, if we present a learner or a viewer with a lot of interacting parts and a lot of information, uh, it, it drains um, our, our mental resources. So cognitive load is any mental activity that's imposed on working memory. Is that clear enough? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is. And then, uh, you know, that, that point being that, that, that working memory is so short and small. And so it, it just, to my mind, brings uh, the point about just how so many subject matter experts are, uh, you know, just they want to share their their full, vast wealth of knowledge about a particular subject and how that actually is counterproductive in sort of a counterintuitive way. It's counterproductive, right? Because they sort of feel like we're going to share everything we know, and yet that actually becomes a real problem. Absolutely. That's why when it comes to learning, less is more. And there's been so much research that shows spaced learning, spaced practice, where people can process the information, have a gap or a pause, and then take it up again a few days later. And it's just kind of funny that in the training field and in the world of you know learning experience design, we will give eight-hour courses, <laughs> and yet that's the opposite of what people need. They need they could use an hour twice a week or one two hours, you know, a few times a week, something like that. Right, so that we can introduce something, they can uh, take it in a working memory and then do that effort that's going to move it to that long-term memory. Right, that's why application of knowledge is so important when we're when we're training because that's when we fit new information into existing information. So it's only cognitive load is really only relevant when or present when we're learning something new, which is, you know, very frequent. <laughs> right. And so now that we've talked a little bit about just cognitive load in general, would you share a little bit about what you've um, found out about cognitive load and how it can impact um, collaborative learning? Sure. I feel so lucky. I have, through one of my clients, I have access to academic journals. So I can read what some of the latest research is. And although um, this has been going on for a while, it's still relatively recent. The whole idea that collaborative learning can actually, in a way, create an increased working memory because it's being shared among a group. So let's say you have individuals who are having trouble learning something like um, maybe in the pharmaceutical world, perhaps salespeople are having trouble learning the latest science of a medicine. Well, if they form a group and work together, and if the group cooperates and works easily together, it actually creates one larger working memory. So people can contribute to the learning in their own ways, and it actually makes it easier for everyone to learn. 
But there is one caveat, and that's the transaction costs. I did say that the people need to be able to get along so there are, and coordinate their efforts. So there are some transaction costs, and those are the costs that the essentially the cognitive load that comes from trying to coordinate things, trying to get along with people, trying to um, align ideas and how things should get uh, should be carried out. If those transaction costs are really high, then it's not going to be worth it to do collaborative learning. So if you've got a group that can't get along or a group that doesn't want to work together, it's probably not going to work out. But um, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, I just think that's fascinating because right, the, I think we've been sort of shown that collaborative learning seems like this uh, th- this great thing to go after, right? The peer-to-peer learning that, that we can share with each other and um, and that's a very effective way to learn. But I think as you're pointing out, that's true, but you have to be aware of the, the specific dynamics of, of the group that's in place and those uh, particular learners to know whether or not that group learning is actually going to be um, uh, helpful or if those transaction costs are going to be so high that it's not really going to actually help and it's going to kind of, the, the transactions costs are going to take part of that working memory away from whatever the learning topic is. Right. And there are just two more qualifiers. One is this works better for novice learners. So people who are new to a particular topic that, that, um, that they're trying to learn, it works better for them because experts already have their own way of solving problems and doing things. And then the other thing is the facilitator can um, improve the way the group coordinates uh, activities by providing a little bit of instruction of how to work together as a group. So we do have a little bit of control over that. Mm, Excellent point there, that they can be scaffolded, facilitated in a way that then helps ease those transactional costs for the learners. That's a good way to put it. And so, you know, I know that among the leading learning listeners, we we definitely have some hands-on instructional designers and developers we also have folks who collaborate with and lead those designers, um, so they're a step or even a, a few steps removed from uh, ID work. And so I'm curious to know from your standpoint, you know, that you've been so invested in creating these meaningful learning experiences for so long, you know, what is it that you wish everyone working in a learning business, regardless of their job title, understood about learning experience design? That this is a great opportunity to talk to vent. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's right. Lay it bare for us. <laughs> no, um, but really, what I wish everyone knew who was involved in any way, shape, or form in learning, product design, marketing, is to really empathize and understand the audience. And it almost sounds so cliched because everyone is saying that now, but cliches are often true. And in this case, it really is true that by understanding the learner or the audience and understanding their challenges, really walking in their shoes, you can, you will be much more successful. You will create something that's meaningful and you will create something that, you know, may improve their lives and be long lasting. So often in a typical organization, um, as someone from on, on high will say what the uh, employees need to learn. And, and so often it's off. 
If you have a chance and an opportunity, if you give instructional designers the opportunity to observe, interview, work with, iterate with the actual learners, you come out with a much more successful product that can be tied to business goals. Great. So definitely understand the learner that you're designing for and don't make, exump- don't make assumptions or don't accept the assumptions sometimes that are handed to you about those learners. Well said again. <laughs> well, I, I know that, uh, again, a lot of our listeners' organizations um, work with subject matter experts and they partner with them to develop uh, learning experiences. And so, again, I'm thinking about kind of advice that you might give. Um, you know, how do you think people can work best with subject matter experts to, to help that process, that kind of exchange of, of information about the topic at hand, um, and then also help the outcome. So the learning experience that, that gets developed out of um, whatever the subject matter expert has to share. So any thoughts about how people can best work with subject matter experts? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great question. And um, recently I did a review of three books about how to work with SMEs. So it really uh. is an issue. And I think one of the main things that anyone can do is to educate them about human cognitive architecture very lightly, you know, about what people need to learn, how working memory can be overloaded so easily, and about cognitive load. And then you bring it back to, well, what three or four things for this one learning intervention, do people really need to know? And once you've both agreed on that, then you can go through and see if what aligns and what doesn't. And what doesn't align can be taught another time. It can be listed as a resource. But you really can only focus on three to four things at once if you, really, if you want learners to take in the information and retain it for the long term. Great. So the sort of the ruthless paring down, but by educating them, uh, making sure that they understand why that, that again, that less is more, as you said earlier. And so it's critical to, to really pare things down to that essential. To help you complete the work essential to your learning business, we suggest you check out our sponsor. WBT Systems develops the industry-leading top-class LMS, which delivers transformative professional development experiences for education and certification programs. With a single point of support from in-house integration experts, top-class LMS easily integrates with a wide variety of systems to provide efficient administration and a unified learning experience. WBT supports organizations in using learning technology to help drive growth in membership, increase revenues, and enhance the learning experience. WBT believes in truly understanding your challenges and partnering with you to ensure the success of your education programs. Find out more at leadinglearning.com WBT. And now back to the interview as Salisa asked Connie about curation. You know, curation is a topic that we've talked a lot about on the Leading Learning podcast in, in, uh, in other episodes. And um, it's something that I, you know, we think learning leaders are, should be actively engaged in. But I was really intrigued when I came across um, a concept that I first encountered on, on your website about this idea of taking curation a bit further um, to the point of, of creating courses. So having curated courses so would you tell us a little bit about, you know, what a curated course is, and then maybe um, also tell us about when a curated 
course would make sense, you know, versus a, a, a different approach to the design and development of a course? Sure. So with a curated course, you start, as you would with any course, with the need, uh, the learning objectives, the purpose, the goal, the performance goal. And then if you have a hunch just from your knowledge of the world or from research that you can fulfill this uh, performance goal, that you can achieve this by using existing materials for example, something like cybersecurity. There's a lot of information about cybersecurity online. So if you can um, meet each goal and learning objective with existing information, you just try to pair up existing materials with the learning objectives or the performance objectives. Then you have to filter out. When you have a nice long list of curated information, and this can be videos, um, a lynda.com course or a LinkedIn learning course, um, articles, graphics, information, graphics, videos. There are just so many things that um, exist online now. Podcast so episodes. <laughs> you know, I should have said that, that first. <laughs> yeah, so many things that um, already exist that you may be able to align one-to-one or two-to-one. But I think you have to, before you even start that alignment process, you have to go through and filter and see which existing materials, which curated materials are actually um, come from a good, reliable source. And if possible, run them by a subject matter expert if you're not one yourself. So once you have that filtered content, then you can see what lines up with your performance goals. And if there are any gaps, you can just fill the gaps by, for example, um, interviewing an expert in the field, creating your own little tutorial. And as you go through, you'll be able to find that um, you may be able to create a course, and it will be in many different voices, and that can be a positive or a negative. It might give people a lot of different perspectives on something. And... um, then you just arrange it on a web page. I, ca- I would imagine it could be on something like a learning portal, and you have links to all of the items. Now, there are ways to uh, make sure that people understand it and learn it by having lunch and learns, virtual collaborations, forums, where there are discussions about these things, something to tie it all together. So the instructional designer or learning experience designer is still doing their same work but they just may not be creating the content, but they're making sure that it ties together. So the, the great advantage of this is it saves time, it saves effort, you get different perspectives, you may be able to have a lot of different media, and, and that's kind of interesting to people because it, it uh, introduces a little variety. Of course, there are some negatives. If your company does something or association does something in a specific way, that is very, very unique, you may not be able to find the information or you may be able to just overlay your own on top of it. Read this article. We do it this way, but this was an interesting perspective. Um, so it can be a time saver and which is, of course, a money saver, but it also has its downside to that it may not align perfectly with how the organization does things or the organization's values. Well, and you mentioned at the beginning, you know, if just based on, you know, my understanding of the world, if I think there might be content out there, 
you know, go out and look for it and see if there is. So obviously that's kind of a, a prerequisite for taking this approach is that it has to be a, a topic where there are available resources that there's enough for you to curate to actually fulfill those learning goals. Are there other cases in which you think a, a curated course is a particularly good fit or particularly bad fit? Um <laughs> now you might have got me there. <laughs> like, what were you thinking of? Well, I was just wondering if, for example, if, you know, if, it, if you're sort of thinking about lower levels of, of learning, if it's more about kind of, um, uh, you, you know, that, that, that it might be easier to uh, use them at sort of more of an informative level, you know, versus getting into kind of higher levels of, of performance um, learning with, with a curated course. But even as I'm saying that, I'm starting to think, well, not necessarily because you mentioned you could involve the, the lunch and learns or other places where you could be getting into more performance, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a really good point because let's imagine someone who's new to a topic. It might be great that before they take a course on how to do user experience testing, that they read um, several articles, blog posts, articles, maybe watch a few videos about what user experience design is. On the other hand, it's known that novices need a lot of guidance and, um, you know, hand-holding when they're learning something new. So on the other hand, you could make an argument for the fact that a curated course would be perfect for experts mm-hmm. uh, because you would be just gathering up interesting articles that could be very, very advanced, and it just saves experts who probably want to continue learning in their field. It would save them the time of having to research all of this. And I have definitely met people in my travels and in my teaching who are full-time curators. That's their job. Right. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. But it is, it's, it's the information overload, right? And so we can all value the fact if we can turn to a curator who can tell us these are the best resources, that is incredibly valuable. And it, you know Go ahead. Well, I was going to say just no, just so that even as you were talking, I, I think you make an excellent point about you know I think the curated courses could be really for any level uh, of learner could be for that novice or it could be uh, valuable for that expert as well. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I did want to say is I think it would be pretty important for the designer of a curated course to always introduce something with a you know to annotate the curation so before the, an article say this is important because you know this was selected because and to um, give people a little introduction to it so it, it makes sense and you're giving it context yeah excellent idea yeah so the contextualization of of that particular asset in this the context of this curated course so we'll switch topics. We'll leave uh, curated courses for now. I think it's a really intriguing concept, though, and I'm I'm guessing that many listeners may may think about that as a as a, an avenue to pursue. But you know, we brought up uh, podcasting as something uh, that might get uh, folded in an episode or two as as part of a curated course. And you are, as I mentioned in the intro, a, a podcaster too. And and so, of course, I want to ask you uh, at least one question uh, about that. Um, you started the e learning coach podcast in 2013 um, and you talk to authors and experts and people doing interested things related to learning. I'm curious, um, what got you started uh, in podcasting? Was there a particular um, impetus back in 2013 that, that made you pick up the microphone? Mm. I wanted to do it for several years prior to that, but 
Um, most people, when they hear their voice recorded, they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I waited a, a few years before I actually said, oh, I don't even care anymore. Um, I just found these gaps because I have a kind of academic mindset and I have been through a graduate school program. I saw that a lot of people in the field, um, which is perfectly fine, no judgment, don't have degree, a related degree. They got into the field in all kinds of different ways. So when I see these knowledge gaps, I felt like it would be a great way to contribute to the field, to interview professors and authors and people who are, have a certain expertise in their area and to disseminate that to other, you know, to, to the people in the field. And I very, just sounds like, just like you, very little fluff in the podcast, not much um, intro conversation. Basically, we just, bam, dive right into it. And it's been so exciting because I've been able to learn and share and distribute so many things that were kind of missing. For example, I interviewed a professor who wrote a giant book or co-wrote a very large book on how to write tests. Mm. And his information was fascinating. And I was able to interview uh, Hollywood, um, someone who read Hollywood scripts who helped us learn how to write better video scripts. And the list goes on and on because the field is so um, multidimensional. There's almost no limit to the types of people that I can interview. So it's been really fun. Well, I've enjoyed the episodes that I've listened to and I have learned from your podcast. Uh, I'm curious, though, to know what lessons learned have you taken away from the podcast? And in particular, are there any that have actually changed or impacted how you approach learning experience design? Mm. Well, ever since I started really getting into and teaching design thinking, I've been so... Um, set on interviewing people and interviewing users. So I feel as though my experience doing podcasting has helped me become a better interviewer uh. and, a, and a better listener. And um, of course, I've learned so much because I'm always interviewing people who, you know, know a lot about one topic, you know, one area, and you just learn so much by talking with them. So I feel like it has uh, just made me more broad-minded, um, essentially broaden my experience and help me interview users and learners in a better way. Hmm, that's great. And, and so now we're going to head down the home stretch and this is the next to last question. It's one that we ask of all the guests on the leading learning podcast. And it is about one of your most powerful learning experiences. What have you been involved with as an adult since finishing that uh, formal education? What's been really impactful? You know, I think what's been most impactful was when I started sharing, writing, and putting myself out there because I was very hesitant to do that. I would just as soon um, be behind the computer. <laughs> but actually, the networking, um, the the sharing, the learning how to give and and uh, just distribute information to people, my journey. And learning from other people's learning journeys has just been one amazing experience. I started um, my blog in 2009, and it's just been an, an unending, constant learning experience. 
Well, great. Well, I'm glad um, that you embarked on that sharing um, and that you found that uh, an important learning experience for yourself because it has then given the rest of us access to all that you've put out there on the e-learning coach uh, website and, and now the, the podcast as well. So final question, if listeners want to learn more about you and your work or connect with you, where would you have them go? Um, I have something like 350 articles on the elearningcoach.com and the podcast is there too. And if anyone goes to the contact form, it just sends an email right to me. Well, so that's, a, that's a good place to start. Excellent. And we'll make sure to put a link to the website uh, in the show notes for this as well. Connie, thank you very much for making time for this conversation. It was my pleasure. That concludes the interview with Connie Malamud. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 190. When you check out the show notes, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be really grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple and that'll put you in the right place. So Lisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings play an important role in helping the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And we'd be grateful if you would check out our sponsors for this quarter. Find out more about WBT Systems at leadinglearning.com slash WBT and find out what Community Brands has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash Community Brands. And finally, take just a minute and tell others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com leading lifelong learning. And of course, share us with others there. You can walk down the hall and pop your head into somebody's office. But however you do it, please spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.